The Old Testament reading is from Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 13. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command to you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, take care, lest you forget the Lord, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear, then you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. The word of the Lord. The psalm will be Psalm 122. We'll read responsively by whole verse. I was glad when they said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together. The thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Peace be within your walls, and security within your towers. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Our New Testament lesson is from 2 Corinthians, chapter 8, verses 1 through 7. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given amongst the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of afflictions, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed into a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave of themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of, uh, of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus, as he had stated, started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our gospel lesson this morning is from Mark chapter 12, verse something, 28 through 44. 18. 18 through 44. Sadducees came up to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, 
Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and he died and left no offspring. And then the second brother took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. Now, in the resurrection, when they all rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven all had her for a wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason that you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. One of the scribes came up and heard him disputing with them. And seeing as he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And Jesus taught in the temple, and he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the place of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, but a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. This is the Gospel of the Lord. So in the first half of Mark, Jesus told people over and over not to talk about who he was. And now, as he continues to move closer to the cross, 
he continues to engage with the, the influential leaders around him about who the Messiah is. And he also talks about what devotion to this Messiah looks like. Let me pray as we open God's word. Father, we, we thank you today for the gift of Scripture. We thank you that these, these words of yours were written down and recorded. We thank you that they've been preserved for us, and we ask that you would use them by your power to transform our hearts and our minds and our actions. In Christ's name, amen. So this is one of the very few passages where uh, Jesus talks to the Sadducees. And the Sadducees were one of two kind of religious political groups that held influence in Israel at the time. We don't know nearly as much about them as we do who the Pharisees were. And both of these groups seem to advocate both personal piety and kind of corporate fidelity to God's commandments. The Pharisees were more involved with the the synagogue system that was spread around the the outskirts of Israel. That's why we see them more in the Gospels, because so much of the Gospels takes place up in the north in Galilee. The Sadducees were were more concentrated in Jerusalem. They were were the elites of the day. They They wanted to be among the influential, the power brokers. And so they congregated in the seat of power in Jerusalem. If you, if you just skim through the Gospels, it's very easy to see the Pharisees as nothing more than a group of legalistic religious authorities. But they really weren't. I mean, that, they were, but that's not all they were. It's actually better to see the Pharisees and the Sadducees as, as political parties, almost, rather than kind of church governance. And the big difference between these two groups is how they viewed the Old Testament. The, the Pharisees saw all of the Old Testament as authoritative and God's word. But the Sadducees only read the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And so they had a very different view on the idea of resurrection. And this is key to Jesus' time with them in the temple before the cross. Because at that time, there were a lot of Jews in Israel who believed in the idea of resurrection. There was, in, in John chapter 11, when Lazarus has died, and Jesus goes to the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Jesus says to her, um, he's he's talking about the death of of Lazarus, and and Mary says, you know, I believe that my brother will rise again on the last day. And this was a very common thing at the time. A lot of Jews believed in the last day, the, the, the day of the Lord. They had read Isaiah 25 about how on the day of the Lord, God's faithful people will feast together with him on his holy mountain. They had read Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, which says, Many of those who lie asleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So this was not an uncommon belief. But the Sadducees didn't believe it because the Sadducees only looked at the first five books of the Bible and the hints of the resurrection aren't really found there. And so this is another group of people that wants to test Jesus, that wants to poke at him, that wants to kind of see what his bona fides are in comparison to their own beliefs. They wanted to hear what his thoughts on doctrine were. And they put him to the test with an absolutely ridiculous question. In the Torah, the five books that they read, there are provisions made for something called leveret marriage, where if a man and a woman marry and they die and have no kids, the man's brother is supposed to marry that woman so that she can keep her inheritance 
so that she isn't left destitute, so that the, any children that she ends up having actually will, will inherit from the first husband's estate. And this may sound very strange to our modern ears, but this provision that was laid out in the Torah is actually a mercy of God as a way of, of protecting and valuing women at a time when single women, single women, especially a widow, didn't have a whole lot of property rights or security. So the Sadducees are talking to Jesus about this resurrection that they keep hearing about and they don't believe in. And Jesus says to them, he, they ask him a question, and instead of answering it, he just looks at them and he says, you are so very wrong. But he doesn't tell them exactly how they're wrong. What he says is that they don't understand the power of God, and they don't understand the word of God. He says that the scriptures, this is the same thing as when he will talk to people and say, you have searched the whole scriptures to try to find life there, but you don't understand that all of the scriptures talk about me. And so he talks to them about the resurrection, and he says, look, you are asking the, simply the wrong question. Think of it like this. Um, if you ever see a, a picture of, of an incredibly beautiful place like um, Pikes Peak in Colorado or the Grand Canyon, if you see a, a video that's shot there, it's really impressive to look at. And I had seen pictures of Pikes Peak, but until I actually went there, I had no idea what it was that I was supposed to be looking at. And all of a sudden, the pictures that I can look at don't nearly do justice to the actual experience of being there. Three years ago, when Elizabeth and I went to Arizona to adopt Gus, we actually went to the, I went to the Grand Canyon for the first time, and I stood at the edge of it. And until that moment, all the, all the movies that I'd seen of it, all the pictures that I'd seen, I had no idea just how amazing it actually was. It couldn't be put into words. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here about the resurrection. These people are asking him a question about marriage and how it will look in eternity. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. Eternity is the real reality. And we've given you things here to point to what that's going to be. Now, there's been a lot of ink spilled on, on this thing where Jesus says, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And you can... You can kind of get yourself wrapped up around this. You know, well, am, am I going to know my wife in heaven? That doesn't sound great. Am I, am I going to know my husband? Okay, well, if, if we're not going to marry or given in marriage, what about my kids? Am I, are, am, am I still going to be in the same relationship with my kids? But the thing to remember is this, that God tells us that marriage itself is a picture. It's a, a visible sign pointing to a greater reality. It points to the marriage between Christ and his holy bride, the church. And so once we are in the actual physical presence of God, glorifying in the light of Christ that shines so bright that we don't even need a sun anymore, because that's the glory and the magnitude coming off of Jesus, that, that picture will finally be fully realized. And so the, the sign that points us there will no longer be needed because we'll be there the greater reality will have been established. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, you are so wrong. You have no idea. You've got this completely backwards. And if you remember anything that Jesus said to the, to the Sadducees, remember this, scripture and power. He said to the Sadducees that they don't understand the word of God and they don't understand the power of God. How do we, how do we today, us, how do we know anything about Jesus? Jesus. 
the Son of God. We know it from Scripture. We know it from the Word of God. I mean, personal revelation, a a warm, fuzzy feeling, our best guess about what Jesus is like, none of that ultimately counts for anything unless it squares with the Word of God. What we know about Jesus, what we know about what he came to do, how he did it, where he is now, what his plans for us are, all of that from the Word of God. And how do we come to believe in that? We come to believe in that through the power of God. We apply it to our lives. We live in the light of Christ through the power of God. The power of God using the Word of God for the people of God. That's the Christian life. And it's not easy, but it is actually that simple. And at various points through this passage, as I was reading it this week, I can almost hear Jesus kind of using a phrase like that, kind of thinking, you know, guys, this is not all that complicated. It's the same with the next argument that he gets into. As he's, as he's in the temple, in the courts of the temple, the Sadducees are coming up to him, the scribes and the religious leaders, the, the lawyers are coming up to him, and they're all asking him questions. So up comes the next guy. What is the orientation of our lives? What is our life supposed to revolve around? God's God's commandments to his people are signposts, guideposts, things that point us toward godly living and things that point us away from activities or thoughts or, or, or emotions that are destructive to ourselves, destructive to others, and destructive to the world around us. So when the scribe tries to test Jesus, he says, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus restates The same thing that we say every week. Love God and love neighbor. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And the greatest commandment, as Jesus himself identifies it, the greatest commandment is actually about worship. It's about loving God with our entire being. It's about praising him and orienting our lives around him. But interestingly, Jesus then answers a question that the scribe didn't ask. He says, which commandment is the primary one? And Jesus answers him, quoting from Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 and following, which we just heard. It's one of the most important passages in the entire Bible. So important was this commandment that after giving it, God said to his people in the next sentences, you should talk about this stuff all the time. They were supposed to spend their lives in a posture of worship of their creator, God, and they should talk about it with their kids and with their neighbors and with their co-workers. It should permeate everything that we do. So that's the first commandment, but then Jesus reaches way past Deuteronomy back into Leviticus 19 to grab the next one that he says is the second most important. Love your neighbor as yourself. And these two pair so well together. Our love for God and the outworking of our love for our neighbor. That it's no wonder that Jesus put them together for this scribe and for us to read. If God is in charge, and he made you, and he made me, then logically it follows that both of us, each of us, has some kind of equality before God. And both of us are image bearers of God. And so it it only follows logically that if we are to spend our life loving and adoring God with our entire being, that the the initial outworking of that will be to love our neighbor as ourself. And the scribe, praise God, the scribe tells Jesus that he agrees with him. And then the scribe makes his own application. If these are the most important commandments, these two, love God and love neighbor, and they're standing, think about where they're standing where they say this, they're standing in the middle of the temple in Jerusalem. 
The sacrificial system of the temple that they are standing in the midst of is simply not the most important thing in their life. That's what this guy says. He says, then all these whole sacrifices and and burnt offerings, these are not the crucial thing. And Jesus says, "You're, you're getting it. You are really starting to get it. He says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And I can almost, as I picture it, I can see a little grin, a little wink in his eye. And this completely shuts down any further discussion from the scribes. And again, it's like Jesus is saying, guys, this is not all that complicated. It's actually kind of simple. It by no means means that it's easy. It is not. But it is just not as complicated as some people want to make it out to be. So how does that translate to us? What are we supposed to, how are we supposed to see this scribe asking Jesus these questions? Having him affirm the, what the scribe says. How are we supposed to apply that to ourselves? Well, firstly, we need to hear the, heed the words of Jesus. We need to heed the words of Jesus quoting Deuteronomy, which Moses wrote. That we should be talking about the things of God all the time. Living in the light of that truth all the time. Deuteronomy 6.4 really is one of the most important passages in the Bible. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today will be on your heart. You should teach them diligently to your children. You should talk of them when you sit in your house. That's with your family and your loved ones. You should talk of them when you walk along the way. So with your neighbors. You should talk of them when you lie down or when, when we're resting. We still are thinking about these things. You should talk about them when you rise. That is, when you go to do your work. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. So whatever you find to do with your hands, you're still reminded that the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and that we should love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And they should be as frontlets before your eyes. So that as you look around the world, whatever your eye falls on to look at, We remember that this was created by God for the glory of God. You should write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So, we declare to others as well, anyone passing by, that we believe these things to be true. So in ways both active and passive, our entire lives are to be shaped by this wholeness of God's holiness and of our response to him. It constantly points to truth and to the king. Speaking of the king... Jesus, again, over and over and over in this passage, points back to Scripture to point to himself. He shows that there were hints and and echoes and foreshadowings of the idea of this God-man that he is way back in the Old Testament. Both groups that I mentioned before, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were political parties. They were basically concerned with observing God's laws in order that he would return his favor to Israel They could get out from under uh, foreign oppression, and they could become a great nation again. That was really their goal. And so they saw great possibility in the idea of the Messiah. The Messiah, the promised son of David, who God was going to put on the throne of Israel forever and ever. They saw great possibility in him being the son of David alone. But Jesus says, how can the Messiah, how can the Christ be just a man. And he goes on to quote from Psalm 110, which is the most quoted passage, the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament, quoted over and over and over again. King David wrote a song that said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand 
until I make your enemies, until I turn your enemies into a footstool. Jesus says, how could David call one of his descendants Lord? So if the Messiah is, if the Messiah is Lord, how could, how could David have called him Lord if he is only a man? Yes, the Messiah would come from the line of David because God had promised that to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. But that's not all that the Messiah would be. He would also be David's Lord and Abraham's Lord and Isaac's Lord, Jacob's Lord and your Lord and my Lord. He would be both fully God and fully man. It's no wonder that at several times throughout his life to various people, Jesus says, you claim to know the scriptures, but if you did, you would see that all of this is preordained, that all of this was prophesied and that all of this is inevitable. Jesus of Nazareth was a real boy with real parents who came from the real line of David. He was from a real place. He grew up. He learned a trade. He became an itinerant preacher. But he was also the creator God of the universe, the infinite and the transcendent God in human flesh, both at the same time. And as these scribes are asking him these things, Jesus then turns, turns the table on them. He turns to the other people, to his disciples, and he says, beware of the scribes. These people who's he, who he's been engaging with, who are trying to trick him, trying to trap him. He says, beware of them. Because they walk around in, in long robes. They love to be recognized when they're out at the store. They always take the best seat in church. They always have the seat of honor at a feast. And these are very important people in their own minds. Supposed experts in the law, supposed experts in the scriptures. But what do they do? They're not loving God and loving neighbor. They're not making that central and primary to their lives. They make a, a great show of saying long prayers for public consumption. Is that the true worship that God calls us to? Is that pointing to God or is that pointing to myself? So they make a great show of public worship and saying, and saying these long and eloquent prayers to God while at the same time they're devouring widows' houses. Is that loving my neighbor as myself? These people who should have known better spent their lives studying the scriptures. They should have known better and they claim to understand God's word, but they do not. And they certainly don't live with any understanding of God's power in their lives. Living as though God's power were real without living as though God's word were real. If you only live with God's power, but don't have God's word, this is, this is a chaotic life. But being like the scribes, living as though God's word were true, without living as though God's power was real, that power to make you understand the scripture, to transform your mind. That's emptiness. That's form and ritual with nothing underneath it. And no real sense that God really does call us to love him with our whole heart and really does call us to love our neighbor as ourselves. Form and ritual with nothing underneath it, the emptiness that Jesus abhors in the religious leaders of the day. And we can see creeping evidence of that throughout, throughout the history of the church. It's always something we have to guard against. N.T. Wright talked about how we can compare this behavior with Jesus himself. He said when David's Lord became David's son, he didn't use it as a mean of gaining popularity or wealth like the scribes did. He used it to give up his life 
He used it to give up his life like the widow did. Because then we get to the example of the widow's coin. And this is really one of the, the, the limitations of preaching only one passage of a, of a Bible book each week because everything in Mark 12 and 13, all of it hangs together as one long story and each part builds on the last. That's why we're doing Mark in such huge chunks every week for the last 11 weeks. Because each part of the little narratives that Mark gives us builds on the last thing. But we can't do Mark 12 and 13 together because that would be an hour and 20 minute sermon and we'd be here well past, well past lunch. But it's also why I've been encouraging you to read Mark all the way through in one sitting. Because everything that Jesus was talking about with the scribes, pointing back to himself in scripture, talking about how God would have us live, showing that he was actually the king, that's all wrapped up in the idea of the widow's coin and then what comes next, which we'll get to next week. So the culmination of this section, the hinge between the scribes and the Sadducees and talking about the temple next week, the idea of the widow's coin. A widow would have very little security of her own, would be dependent on others and dependent on whatever stability she had from whatever little money that she had. Remember Jesus talking bad about the scribes, how they devour widows' houses, how they are preying on the powerless. And so this widow comes to the temple, the place where worship happens, where sacrifices are brought. One of the ways that the people of God live out the teaching of Deuteronomy 6 to always keep the truth of God in front of their eyes and to keep it bound on their hands as she's holding these coins. The rich would come to the temple, to the offering box, and give abundantly. And they'd make a great show of giving. But this widow literally came and gave two copper coins. And it's called a, a lepton, or two lepta. And there's a, a, an expert in ancient currency who said that the lepton is probably the lowest denomination coin ever struck by any nation at any point in history. It was, for all intents and purposes, for our purposes today, it was almost worthless. An expert in the market economy of the first and second century thinks that two leptons, if, if, they, if they hit the price in the market just right, two leptons would have been about enough to buy three grapes. And it's all this woman had. And yet she gave it all. So, when you look at this, and if you read ahead to Mark 13, are we supposed to look at this idea of this woman coming and giving everything that she has in the temple? Are we supposed to look at this as Jesus pointing this out and us thinking, we need to go and do likewise? This is a good example for us to follow. Or are we supposed to look at it and say, what a broken and predatory system of religion the temple had become. That they would prey on a poor widow and take the last of her money, leaving her starving and destitute, rather than doing the opposite, rather than caring for her, bringing her in, providing for her. Which of those two things are we supposed to think? It's probably both. And we know that because in the Second Corinthians passage today, Paul, holding up the, the people of Macedonia as as being so godly and so filled with zeal for Christ and for his church that they gave out of their own poverty to the mission of the church. And that's a lot of the same language is, is echoed here in Mark. And so I think that it is supposed to be an example for us. But I also think that it is pointing to exactly what Jesus was railing about with the scribes, about how they're preying on widows, they're preying on the destitute, the vulnerable, 
the marginalized, that the temple system was broken. This woman who gave everything that she had, I think more than anything else is supposed to, is supposed to remind us of Christ. Jesus, the, the God-man, who was incarnate, transcendent God made flesh, gave everything that he had for the sake of the kingdom. This, this widow, she gave it all. She had nothing left. Jesus gave it all. He had nothing left. Jesus suffered the wrath of God for all the sins of his people, past, present, and future. Billions upon billions of people. How many billions of people? The punishment for all of that sin poured out on one man at one time. And the utter separation from God that that brought. Being completely forsaken on the cross. As we move closer to Good Friday, as we move closer to the cross, we start to see more clearly the depth of the devotion that Christ showed to his people, to his bride, the church. And the sacrificial system of the temple, the way that that God's people had worshipped in Jerusalem for a thousand years, that was all about to fall away and change forever. But what was coming next? Christ crucified and resurrected, the, the, the true and final temple. What was coming next was much like the idea of, of, um, the, of marriage not continuing into heaven. Because what was, what was coming next in heaven is so much better than anything that we can imagine that we don't have any categories for it. What was coming next for the people of God where the, the true and final temple was about to be revealed? Christ died and resurrected, united to each of his people through the power of the Holy Spirit. That was so much better than the temple system itself that it's almost not worthy of comparison. On this Latere Sunday, as we rejoice in the midst of a penitential season, let us remember the sacrifice that Christ made for us and how how incomprehensibly deep the Father's love is for us, that he would send his only son. That's a simple message that you can tell to a child. It's, it's simple, but it wasn't easy. It was, it was the singular defining event of human history. And as we go closer to the cross, as we go closer to Good Friday and then to Easter Sunday, I would urge you to just rest in the joy that comes from knowing how much the Father loves us and to act out of that love, to act out of that love, to remember that God calls us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that this is so important that we are to talk about this and act this out in every aspect of our lives every day. Let's pray.